Chapter Seventeen of Nurse and Spy in the Union Army by Sarah Emma E. Edmonds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen. When I reached the main army, the troops had gained a new position and were driving the enemy back. The troops were well nigh exhausted, yet fighting bravely and determinedly. Night came and put an end to that day's battle but instead of spending the night in taking care of our poor wounded men, we were obliged to retreat under cover of darkness to Malvern Hill and leave our wounded in the hands of the enemy. Of the many who died from exhaustion, as well as wounds, during our retreat from the vicinity of Richmond, I know of none more worthy of record than that of a young man of my acquaintance who died on the field the night after this battle. He was not wounded, but died at his post from sheer exhaustion. In the course of the evening I had seen and offered him some brandy from my flask, which I had for the wounded. He was then scarcely able to stand on his feet, yet he refused to take the brandy, saying, that others needed it more than he did, and besides, said he, I never take any intoxicating liquor under any circumstances. A notice of his death by an eye-witness, given under the heading, The Soldier's Last Watch, says, quote, A lonely grave, a little apart from others, stands on the ground of one of the battles fought in the retreat from Richmond, in the summer of 1862, which bears on its wooden headboard simply the name Trowbridge. The turf covers the remains of a youthful soldier, who was not only brave and patient, but exemplary as a Christian those battles renewed from day to day, and attended by so many hardships, destroyed many lives, in addition to those lost in conflict with the enemy. Hundreds and thousands of our gallant men, worn out by marches, fighting, hunger, and loss of sleep, became discouraged, and either recklessly threw themselves into the jaws of death, or fell into the hands of the enemy, because they were unable to keep up with their more robust, though not braver, companions. The circumstances of the death of one of these silent martyrs to their country were taken down from the lips of a soldier who was with him in his last hours. It is all that may be known, save to a few bleeding hearts, of one who, alas, like so many others, sleeps in that saddest of all places, a battlefield. The worn-out soldier, the day before his death, said to his lieutenant, I am so weak and helpless I do not know what I can do further he was told to lie down and get what rest he could on the battlefield. About ten at night, said his companion, we were talking together, an officer of the company came up and told us we should retreat at two o'clock in the morning. He ordered us to stand guard till then, two hours each in turn. We took straws and drew lots to decide who should stand first. The lot fell on Trowbridge. I threw myself on the ground under a tree, with my blanket drawn over me, and was soon fast asleep. At twelve I was roused, but said, You must be mistaken, it cannot be five minutes since I lay down. We had been ordered not to speak aloud, or to have a light, and he replied in a whisper, Feel the hands of my watch, it is twelve. I took his place, and he was soon asleep, or seemed to be. At half-past one o'clock the order came to move. I went to wake Trowbridge, but had no answer, except that he groaned heavily once and again. I tried to soothe him and wake him gently, but he turned aside his head, groaned once more, and was gone. I struck a match and looked upon his features. 
they were set and ghastly in death i placed his hand on my cheek and asked him if he was still conscious to press it there was no response life was evidently extinct i made an attempt to find the surgeon or chaplain but they had both gone forward with the army so i searched his pockets and taking from them six dollars for his mother and a letter directed to himself i replaced the envelope that his name at least might be known to those who should find the body several days after this i was one of the number detailed to go back to that spot and bury the dead on searching near the place where trowbridge died i found a grave with a wooden tablet bearing his name not far distant was a house at which i called and asked the inmates if they knew anything of that grave the woman of the family then brought forward an envelope the very one that i had replaced and said that they had buried a soldier there from whose pocket it was taken it was a relief to know what had become of the body of course i wrote to his mother sending the money and giving an account of her son's last moments and his burial this is only a solitary instance of the bravery and faithfulness of the men who fought those terrible battles day after day many of whom died with their muskets in their hands and without receiving a wound died from hunger thirst and fatigue there was a farmhouse near the battlefield to which the wounded were carried and the surgeons of the union army made at their headquarters during the battle i will not attempt to describe the scenes which i witnessed in that building for it beggars all description the poor fellows seemed to know that they could not be removed and would inevitably fall into the hands of the enemy one man asked a surgeon who had just performed an operation on one of his arms doctor is there no alternative must i be taken prisoner the doctor was only a boy in appearance a little scotchman and as noble-hearted a man as ever amputated a limb he replied in broad scotch no my man there is no alternative but keep up a good heart i am not going to leave you i shall be a prisoner for your sakes and will take care of you as long as i can he did so and was really taken prisoner but was not permitted to do much for those for whom he had made such a noble sacrifice he was dr cleland of detroit michigan when the order was given to retreat that night i started with my colt having a good saddle and bridle on him now which i had taken off a dead horse on the battlefield and reached malvern hill about two o'clock in the morning after hitching my horse and unstrapping a small bag of oats and my blanket from the saddle i fed him and proceeded to take a glance around to see how things looked the artillery was already in position and the weary troops were in line of battle but flat on the ground and fast asleep all except the guards who were pacing backward and forward in front of the line ready to arouse the sleepers at any moment feeling safe to consign myself to the arms of morpheus after this reconnaissance i returned wrapped myself in my blanket and slept until the thundering of cannon awoke me in the morning malvern hill is an elevated plateau about a mile and a half by three-fourths of a mile in area nearly cleared of timber and with several converging roads running over it in front there are numerous ravines the ground slopes gradually toward the northeast to the wooded plain beyond giving clear ranges for artillery in different directions the batteries were advantageously posted on these hills 
while the reserve troops were sheltered as much as possible by the ravines. The artillery of the reserve was placed in position so as to bring the concentrated fire of sixty guns to bear upon the enemy's front and left, approaching from Richmond or White Oak Swamp. The brave Colonel Tyler, 1st Connecticut, with great exertion succeeded in getting ten of his siege guns in position on the highest point of the hill, the men having to haul many of them up by hand. Commodore Rogers, commanding the flotilla on James River, placed his gunboats in position to protect the left flank and to command the approaches from Richmond. The battle commenced about nine o'clock in the morning and raged all day with terrible fury. At three in the afternoon the enemy attacked our right and centre with tremendous force both of artillery and infantry. The artillery was replied to with good effect, but our infantry lay upon the ground and withheld their fire until the advancing column was within short musket range, when they sprang to their feet and poured in a deadly volley which entirely broke the attacking force and drove the rebels back some eight hundred yards in great confusion. The battle raged most furiously hour after hour, the enemy advancing in massive column, often without order, but with perfect recklessness, and the concentrated fire of our gunboats, batteries, and infantry mowing down the advancing host in a most fearful manner, until the slain lay in heaps upon the field. At four o'clock the firing ceased along the rebel line, and it was supposed the battle was over but it proved only a calm before a more terrible storm. At six o'clock the enemy suddenly opened upon the left of our line with the whole strength of his artillery, and fiercely pushed forward his column of attack to carry the hill. His infantry, in immense force formed under cover of the woods, and starting on a run across the open space, charging almost up to the muzzle of the guns of our advance batteries, came rushing on with yells and imprecations but in a moment the whole hill was one blaze of light. Those terrible siege-guns had belched forth a murderous fire, and a simultaneous volley from the gunboats, infantry, and numerous batteries sent the enemy reeling back to shelter, leaving the ground covered with their dead and wounded. Then our men dashed forward with the bayonet, with wild shouts and cheers, capturing prisoners and colors, and driving the routed rebels in confusion from the field. At a little past four in the afternoon, when there was a lull in the terrible storm of grape and canister, I ventured to go to a house which stood about halfway between our line of battle and that of the enemy. I found a large quantity of flour, bacon, smoked ham, etc. The appearance of everything in the house indicated that the family had left suddenly without disturbing anything. The dishes were on the table, as if the family had risen from dinner. The beds and bedding, too, remained undisturbed. The late inhabitants seemed to have thought of nothing but of saving their lives and escaping from the Yankees. I was not long in searching cupboard, pantry, and storeroom, and appropriating tea, baking soda, cream of tartar, etc. But in order to reach the house unobserved by the rebels, I had been obliged to crawl there on my hands and feet, and now the question arose, how was I to carry anything back with me? Taking a bed-quilt, I spread it on the floor and commenced selecting the most important articles, such as a small bag of flour, ham, an iron spider, a large coffee-pot, and some other things. After tying these up in the quilt, 
I attached a long bedcord to the bundle, intending to drag it along the ground. Just as I was completing my arrangements, a shell came crashing through the side of the house, and passing through the window on the opposite side, it made the house tremble as if shaken by an earthquake. Then another and another came in quick succession, until I was obliged to seek refuge in the cellar. The rebels evidently thought that the house contained a band of our sharpshooters, and were determined to dislodge them if possible, for they brought three pieces to bear upon it for about twenty minutes, until they succeeded in setting it on fire. Before the echo of the last shot had died away, I heard the crackling of the fire above my head, and thought it prudent to make an attempt to escape. I did not find it very difficult to do so, as the fire was principally confined to the upper part of the house. So taking my precious burden of provisions, which still lay unharmed on the floor, I began my retreat in the same manner in which I had advanced, drawing my pack after me by means of the cord. I could not make much progress, however, for I found it very difficult to drag that immense weight over the rough ground. But I at length succeeded in reaching the lines, and was hailed by hearty cheers from those who were anxiously awaiting the result of my hazardous mission. Several of the boys caught up the spoil and carried it to the rear, where we built a fire and commenced cooking immediately. An hour later we had a nice lot of hot bread, fried ham, and tea ready for disposal. Oh, I shall never forget the thrill of pleasure which I experienced when I carried this food and set it before those famishing men, and saw them eat it with a sort of awe and reverence, as if it had fallen from heaven. One of the men looked up, with moistened eyes, and said, "'Bob, do you know that this food has been sent us by our Heavenly Father, just as much as the manna was sent to the children of Israel? That boy risked his life in procuring it for us, but he never would have returned from that burning building if God had not shielded him from the bursting shell.' I believe it has just come in time to save me from sharing the fate of poor Trowbridge. The Battle of Malvern Hill presented, by far, the most sublime spectacle I ever witnessed. All the battles I had seen before, and those which I have seen since, were nothing to be compared to it. The elevated position which the army occupied, the concentration of such an immense force in so small compass, such a quantity of artillery on those hills, all in operation at the same time, the reflection of the flashes of fire from hundreds of guns upon the dense cloud of smoke which hung suspended in the heavens, turning it into a pillar of fire which reminded one of the camp of the Israelites and of God's dealings with his people of old, the vivid flashes of lightning, the terrible peals of thunder mingled with the continuous blaze of musketry, sudden explosions of shell and the deafening roar of cannon, combined to make a scene which was awfully grand. My soul was filled with the sublimity and grandeur of the scene, notwithstanding the ghastly wounds and piteous groans of the mangled, helpless ones around me. Thus it continued from seven to nine in the evening, the most thrilling picture which the imagination can conceive." As soon as the firing ceased, the rear of the army began to move off in the direction of Harrison's landing, and the exhausted troops in front threw themselves upon the ground to rest. The greater portion of the transportation of the army having been started for Harrison's landing during the night, the order was at once issued for the movement of the army upon the final repulse of the enemy at Malvern Hill. 
the troops were to move by the left and rear, General Keyes's corps being ordered to remain in position until all had moved off, then to cover the retreat. General McClellan, in his official report, awards great credit to General Keyes for the manner in which he carried out these orders. He took every advantage of the ground to open new avenues to aid the movement, and made preparations to obstruct the roads as soon as the army had withdrawn. In this way the march to Harrison's Landing was continued. The bridges were all destroyed, and timber felled across the roads immediately after the army passed, thus rendering any rapid pursuit by the enemy impossible. The trains were kept in the middle of the road, leaving room for the infantry on each side, so as to be in good position to repel any attack which might be made during the march. His dispositions were so successful that, to use his own words, quote, I do not think more vehicles or any more public property were abandoned on the march from Turkey Bridge than would have been left in the same state of the roads if the army had been moving toward the enemy instead of away from him, and when it was understood that the carriages and teams belonging to the army, stretched out in one line, would extend not far from forty miles, the energy and caution necessary for their safe withdrawal from the presence of an enemy in vastly superior numbers will be appreciated. High praise, says the commanding general, quote, is also due to the officers and men of the 1st Connecticut Artillery, Colonel Tyler, for the manner in which they withdrew all the heavy guns during the seven days and from Malvern Hill. Owing to the crowded state of the roads, the teams could not be brought within a couple of miles of the position. But these energetic soldiers removed the guns by hand for that distance, leaving nothing behind. The enemy followed the army with a small force, and occasionally threw a few shells at the rear guard, but were quickly dispersed by our batteries and gunboats, and on the evening of the 3rd of July, the entire army reached the landing. The troops presented a most distressing appearance as they drew up in line, and stacked their guns at Harrison's Bar. The rain had been pouring down most of the night, and was still drenching the poor, battle-worn, foot-sore soldiers, and turning the roads into beds of mortar, and the low marshy ground at the landing into such a condition that it was impossible to get along dry shod, except for those who rejoiced in the possession of high boots. The aggregate of our entire losses in the seven days' battles, from the 26th of June to the 1st of July inclusive, was ascertained, after arriving at Harrison's Landing, to be 15,249, namely, 1,582 killed, 7,709 wounded, and 5,958 missing. On the 4th of July, the following address was issued to the troops by General McClellan. Quote, Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, Camp near Harrison's Landing, July 4, 1862. Soldiers of the Army of the Potomac, your achievements of the last ten days have illustrated the valor and endurance of the American soldier. Attacked by superior forces, and without hope of reinforcements, you have succeeded in changing your base of operations by a flank movement, always regarded as the most hazardous of military expedients. You have saved all your material, all your trains, and all your guns, except a few lost in battle, taking in return guns and colors from the enemy. 
upon your march you have been assailed day after day with desperate fury by men of the same race and nation skillfully massed and led under every disadvantage of number and necessarily of position also you have in every conflict beaten back your foes with enormous slaughter your conduct ranks you among the celebrated armies of history no one will now question that each of you may always with pride say i belong to the army of the potomac you have reached the new base complete in organization and unimpaired in spirit the enemy may at any moment attack you we are prepared to meet them i have personally established your lines let them come and we will convert their repulse into a final defeat your government is strengthening you with the resources of a great people on this our nation's birthday we declare to our foes who are enemies against the best interests of mankind that this army shall enter the capital of the so-called confederacy that our national constitution will prevail and that the union which can alone ensure internal peace and external security to each state must and shall be preserved cost what it may in time treasure and blood End of chapter seventeen